0: Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and fellow video essayist Tom van der Linden from Like Stories of Old that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're discussing The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers. Tom, I know why I'm interested in discussing The Lighthouse. What made you interested in talking about this film?
1: At first, it was just such an interesting looking and interesting feeling film. It has a lot of atmosphere. Two great performances by Willem Dafoe and Robert Patterson, obviously. And I think mostly because it felt like this sort of dark fairy tale, which is what really caught my interest. There's some obvious hinting at symbolism. I'm not sure how deep that goes, but it's definitely what made it a movie that was worth looking into a little bit more closely.
0: Yeah, it's very rich in its connection to myth and symbol, as you mentioned. I did a little bit of research on some of that. So, we can get into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. For me, the way Robert Eggers writes the film and like the way they talk and just the dialogue is very compelling. And yeah, the way it's shot, it looks and feels like an old movie to me already, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed. It just has these like kind of epic monologues. And it's a very unusual aspect ratio that was used for a very short period of time, right around the turn of silent film era. As you mentioned, the the atmosphere is great. Mm-hmm. We already established in our second episode about the Batman that we're both suckers for atmosphere sometimes when there's a strong sense of atmosphere. so.
1: But I definitely think that here it does feed into its themes. It has a certain love. Graftian element to it that we'll get into with some existential horror and the light as this symbol for something incomprehensible to us and overwhelming to the characters that really
0: got my interest. It's interesting that we're discussing this. I think this episode will probably come out immediately after our discussion of Annihilation, or at least close to it. And it's interesting that we're discussing both of these together because in a sense, they're obviously very different movies in style and tone and kind of what they cover, but there's definitely a similarity here, and we'll talk about that more. This movie does some things that I wish Annihilation had done. So mm-hmm. uh, if you listen to that discussion, this one will probably pair interestingly with that.
1: We, we won't spoil Annihilation in this one, though. No,
0: no. What do you think is the best way to dive into this? Should we get a quick introduction to what's going on?
1: I think if you just look at the basic plot, I liked how it's so simple at the surface. And some have even argued that it's all surface, that there's no real depth to it. And I agree in some ways. I have my questions about how deep the symbolism goes or how it's really significant to the story. But I think simplicity is not necessarily an issue. Like I think you can have a simple story and then enrich it through atmosphere or like just the way the story unfolds. But The basic story is you have these two, one senior, one junior lighthouse keeper who come ashore to this really rugged looking place, an isolated lighthouse, and they relieve the other crew and then they get stuck there. And there's a storm at some point that causes them to not be relieved themselves. So they stick in that place longer than was initially planned. And so they basically, they just lose their mind together or at least one of them. But I think that's the, the surface level story.
0: Yeah. It's a pretty linear film structure too. Watching it again, I've seen it quite a few times at this point. And it struck me once again, kind of how there's not a lot of series of rising and falling action. It kind of builds up a certain momentum. Like there's this feeling that you catch fairly early in the film, I think, of just like moving, plodding forward towards this sort of inevitable end point. And it kind of proceeds along that path. Mm -hmm. And Once you realize sort of what's happening, the movie doesn't give you much hope that it's not going to go there. It's Mm -hmm. just like, yep, you're locked into the ride now. Two guys go insane in a lighthouse on an island. That's what this story is going to be. And that's what it ends up delivering
1: but it's not really like a linear descendant to madness. It feels a bit like the tides, like the ebb and yes. flow. Yeah. Like you, s- one scene, you'll see them, like the frustration rises and then they find some way to relieve it. And then the next it rises again, but then they, the next one they're drinking together or they're dancing together. So there's a bit of a back and forth, but under the surface, there's some more structural issues that rise between them. You see it in the first, one of the first scenes where clearly Willem Dafoe's character as the senior lighthouse keeper. He sort of bosses Robert Pattinson around and he immediately doesn't like it. He looks like fed up with it right from the first day. And that's a tension between them that builds over time as well. And what eventually causes them to erupt or at least causes them to fall out with each other.
0: Maybe let's talk about the atmosphere and the style a little bit first, and then we can get into some of the symbolism and things there. Yeah. The world, in my mind, is kind of immaculately constructed, like the black and white cinematography and the texture of everything feels like every shot is sort of nasty and there's rust and dirt and mud and filth everywhere. And it's lit in this very harsh way. You said earlier that you think the atmosphere plays a role in the themes. What did you like about the atmosphere and what do you think the relationship is?
1: Yeah, as you said, it's definitely very stylized, but it's definitely one of those films too where it's really interesting. To see the behind the scenes stories about how it's made. And I think there's an interesting contrast between, on the one hand, having this really stylized approach. It's the almost square aspect ratio. It's black and white. It's clearly staged in terms of like composition and lighting. But at the same time, so much of it is practical. They went to a real location. They really built a lighthouse, at least for the exterior shots. And they really were at a place with bad weather. So a lot of the Elements that you see, the wind, the rain, the waves, that's all really there. So I think it's interesting to have that combination between it feels crafted, but at the same time, it feels grounded in a certain realism. And I think the immediate effect of that is that despite how it looks and how it sounds, that it still feels visceral. Like, as you said, you feel cold and wet as you're watching it almost. And it makes you feel like you need a shower, like, right after. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which which I think was really interesting. And thematically, that visceral experience plays into also the frustration, perhaps, that the characters are feeling. Or at least Robert Patterson. You feel the almost dehumanizing aspect of just being dirty all the time, being in this place that's filthy and weathered and impossible to clean as he apparently tries, but then Willem Defoe's character at one point berates him for not mopping the floor good enough and he has to do it over again. And I think that was a really interesting aspect of just how the production design plays into just giving you this immediate feeling about uh, what the characters are going through.
0: The sound design plays a very big role for me too, where there's this like fog horn that's kind of like endlessly blaring. Oh yeah. And he often uses like waves or rain or the rumbling of this machine that powers the fog horn as kind of these transitional moments or like propels us through the story very much by the sound. As an experiment, I was working on a video about this film closer to when it came out. And just for fun, while I was editing the video, I strung together like all of the moments where the foghorn is blaring, it was like two or three minutes long, just pure foghorn. And it's, it's there just relentlessly throughout the entire film. Yeah. It's so monotonous and oppressive. You really feel like you're kind of trapped there with them, like hearing this blaring in your ears the entire time.
1: I think it's the first thing you hear too when the movie starts, right?
0: Yeah, I think it does a really good job of immersing you kind of inside the madness they're experiencing or inside the world that, that they're a part of.
1: Another thing I read, too, is that apparently they shot on this very old film stock that's basically not being used anymore, but it's very difficult to expose a set to it. Like, you need a lot of light, and so every light that you see, like, even if it's a small oil lamp, they apparently had, like, really bright bulbs in it to the point where the rest of the crew had sunglasses on. But I, I, I read it and I felt like, oh yeah, you can at times read it into the actors' faces, like they're kind of straining into the light. And that's one of those things too, I, where I think the production design maybe accidentally even plays into the performances a little bit by creating this extra bit of discomfort for them to just even be there.
0: <laughs> yeah, those, some of those scenes over the dinner table where they're both lit by the single light source, the shadows are so harsh. Like Willem Dafoe and just the way he's lit at certain times when he's speaking, takes on a very mythic kind of quality in this film, which just plays into this feeling you alluded to earlier of it being like this dark kind of fairy tale or or, or myth or something like mm-hmm. that, which I think maybe is something that we can get into here. We can continue talking about how the production design plays mm-hmm. a role in things as we get deeper into it. But we kind of explained the plot literally is about two guys at a lighthouse and they're they're going insane. But there's Than that. There's also this sort of metaphysical element to the story. There's legends about seagulls containing the souls of sailors. There's superstition. Thomas, the older character played by Willem Dafoe, is keeping the light and he's sort of keeping Ephraim from having access to the light. And Ephraim kind of desires access to this light. Ephraim's haunted by something that at first we don't really know what it is. He's hearing a siren call and seeing visions of logs and bodies and things like that. And these things kind of compound as we go deeper into the story. This is a question I want to ask you, and maybe this will lead to discussing those other elements. What do you think this movie is about?
1: It's kind of difficult to give like a singular straight answer to that, because I feel like what a fairy tale means or like a myth is that it's basically a pretty surface level story like what you see is what you get and what you get is basically a story about how men are driven insane in isolation Eggers himself described it as two men going mad in a phallic (laughs) shaped building (laughs) which I thought was kind of fitting but yeah I think especially with Ephraim's the character played by Robert Patterson he's someone who's running away from something he frames it as just starting anew and he has ambitions to at one point like earn enough money to get his own house and be left alone but you quickly get the impression that he is not so much starting anew as running away from a past trauma or at least something that's bugging his conscience and Thomas the Willem Dafoe's character he obviously has his own history that caused him to be a lighthouse keeper I think he's quickly framed as someone who has gotten access to the light and who has become sort of addicted to it like he locks himself up and Ephraim goes up and there's like weird tentacles moving around there's fluid dripping like this yeah moaning there's something weird like almost sexual going on there and You can't really get a sense of what it is, but somehow Ephraim desperately wants to see what's going on there. And I guess I can get where he's coming from. Like he's just curious, especially on an island in isolation when there's nothing to do and you have this secret chamber. Like, of course you want to go up there and see what's up. But in the end, I think it's a story of the destructive, corrosive effect of isolation and maybe in particular, even masculine isolation, like you can clearly tell at some point there's a lot of built up sexual frustration also because there's just no access to women on the island or on the, at the lighthouse. So yeah, I think that's what gets at the heart of at least the character arcs. And there's also the aspect of ambition, especially from Robert Patterson's point of view, like he wants more than perhaps he deserves, or he wants just more generally. Which causes him to be angry with Willem Dafoe about not getting access to the light, and then when once he does, he essentially gets punished for it by the universe. But it's a difficult film to pin down as having a particular message. I think it's I think it's more uh, and that's it's more descriptive than it is really trying to convey a specific arc or message or warning or whatever. But yeah, what did you think?
0: I agree with everything you mentioned. I think the interesting thing about a film like this and listening to Eggers talk about it, like he's very influenced by Freud and Jung. Mm-hmm. And I think there's very much a sense in which if you like look on the Internet or if you talk to people, you could talk to like four different people and get four different very different interpretations of this film. Like, I've seen people who are like, it's about repressed homosexuality. There are people Mm -hmm. who are like, it's about capitalism. You know, there are people who are like, it's about purgatory. It's about religion. You can get all these different readings on it. And a lot of them sound valid. Like, a lot of them Mm -hmm. fit into the mold. And I think that's because the film is dealing with a myth It's dealing with these very deep symbolic feelings and it's progressing along a sort of intuitive, maybe emotional is the wrong word, but like the story makes sense because it feels a certain way or it has a kind of dream logic. It's very archetypal. Yeah, and it's very archetypal. And so that kind of gives you this landscape that you can then read onto that what you see in it as the viewer and i don't think it's a movie that's trying to be a puzzle that can be solved or like here's this one solution or this one interpretation but there is some of the symbolism there is pretty explicit in the sense of like eggers is clearly treating the lighthouse as kind of this like phallic symbol Mm -hmm. you also have Thomas, Willem Dafoe's character, is clearly alluding to the Greek god Poseidon, who is half man, half fish. So there's these weird moments where like we kind of see Thomas as this like gnarly fish. Character. (laughs) And it's like when you talked about when he's up in the lighthouse and we see tentacles, are the tentacles him? Is Mm -hmm. he doing something with them? Is that a part of the light? We don't really know. There's also a very striking moment where they show Thomas with light beaming out of his eyes into Ephraim.
1: It's a recreation of a painting I read.
0: Yes. And I think that's directly linked to Poseidon as well. And I think he even invokes Poseidon Mm -hmm. at some point, or like he mentions him by name. But like Poseidon as a figure, obviously connected to the sea, he's very vengeful, he's greedy and like hoarding things for himself, Mm -hmm. which all aligns with Thomas's character. He's like keeping the light to himself and he's like demanding a lot of work of Ephraim and Mm -hmm. sort of gaslighting him a little bit. And he almost seems to wield like a kind of metaphysical power. There's some moments where he curses Thomas and he kind of goes on this long spiel and in the background thunder is like timed with his curse and he talks about like if you kill a gull then it's bad luck and he says like you killed a gull and it changes the wind and we see in the movie that that literally happens Yeah, a moment where like Ephraim beats the skull to death and then like the camera pans over pans up to the top of the lighthouse and like the weather vane changes.
1: Yeah I was gonna say you mentioned the superstition but in the world of this film the superstition is real like it has direct effects to the environment like how you behave and how you sort of express virtues or like fail to live up to them like your moral choices seem to have direct consequences to the environment that surrounds you and I think that plays into like a more psychological interpretation that I've seen or that's at some point alluded to where Thomas says to Ephraim that it's all a figment of his imagination that he used to be like working in timber back in Canada. And so he says that, uh, you're probably still wandering in the cold somewhere there and imagining this whole weird situation and the lighthouse and Thomas himself even like he argues that he himself is a figment of the imagination of the other there's the interpretation that maybe they are the same person because they have the same name and on multiple occasions there's this weird messing around with the flow of time like when they first miss the boat at first Ephraim is like oh we'll catch him the next day or something and then the other one is like it's been two weeks already like and even as a viewer it's framed as being straight away after and then later on there's other moments where it's like uh, how long have we been here like two days three weeks yeah so you get a sense it's almost like as if the lighthouse exists outside of the real world in that sense and that maybe it is all symbolical or part of an imagination but yeah I'm not sure if you're meant to take that literally or more as symbolically as to that's how it feels to the characters at that point of time where days are just flowing into each other they no longer know where they end and the other character begins and they
0: just lose their minds together yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> They're both going crazy. Maybe they're both figments of each other's imagination. Or maybe they're stuck in some kind of literal purgatory. It's hard to really say. Yeah. You know, the idea of them being kind of the same person is pretty interesting. In the script, they're referred to as young and old, I think. And then we do find out, we've been calling Robert Pattinson's character Ephraim, because that's the name he goes by, Ephraim Winslow. Mm -hmm. But he reveals at one point that his real name is Thomas. And so they find out that they're both named Thomas, and their characters sort of seem to bleed together in a certain sense, where they've both, um, Ephraim is running away from a death There's a man that he wanted to have killed, it seems like, but didn't. He just allowed to die at his previous job. So he's like grappling with guilt from that. And with Thomas, the older lighthouse keeper, his previous partner second lighthouse keeper died. And the reality of everything can kind of be called into question, but there's a moment where Ephraim pulls up their crab pot and there's a head inside that pot and he makes the connection and goes, oh, you killed the previous lighthouse keeper, like drove him insane and then killed him, which is actually what Ephraim ends up doing to Thomas. So like there's this persona style intertangling of the characters.
1: Maybe also like a violent circle of life situation where the young version comes into that world having to do the work, being jealous of the one who's hoarding the light until he eventually gets fed up and kills the light owner and becomes
0: that person himself until someone else comes along and the same cycle repeats. Two other things I'll mention here that are, I think, interesting symbolically. Mm -hmm. So I already talked about Thomas as being Poseidon. The other element of that is Ephraim as Prometheus, who was a figure who, in Greek mythology, he tries to steal the light of the gods. And then once he does, he is kind of banished by one of the gods, Zeus or somebody, to punishment, which is being eternally having his liver eaten by an eagle, which is kind of the image that we get at the end of Ephraim laying in the rocks and the seagulls are kind of eating at him. So you have these two like figures, one who is a god of the sea and one who is a lesser god trying to steal the light of the greater gods and that is all kind of playing out in this film, which I think is very interesting.
1: Yeah, in that sense, it's interesting that the theory that they are either two separate characters or one and the same, it kind of doesn't matter or like it blends together because even they are either the same or it's suggested that one will become the other until someone else comes along who then will become that other again. And it, yeah, that's...
0: Uh... There's also an interesting tidbit that I noticed this time around that I hadn't noticed before, which is that I mentioned the head in the crab pot and the previous... Lighthouse second, when he pulls up that head, it's missing an eye. And there's the whole element of the reason it's bad luck to kill a gull, according to Thomas, is that they contain the souls of sailors or they contain the souls of people. And the gull that is haunting Ephraim is a gull with only one eye. He's missing an eye. So there's a connection there between the soul of the previous lighthouse second and this gull. Which then Thomas or Ephraim, who's also Thomas, ends up killing. And then by the end, when Ephraim's laying dying on the rocks, he's missing an eye. So that kind of plays into that kind of circular idea as well of like one is becoming the other, perhaps in some kind of pattern. Yeah. Which makes what the movie is doing with sexuality really interesting, where like some people read it as a commentary on like homosexuality or repressed homosexuality where they're struggling with sexual attraction to each other, but are unwilling to acknowledge that or are afraid of that or something like that. And I think you could read that into the film. There definitely seems to be some of those undertones. But then also, if you think about them as being like different versions of each other or becoming each other, I think the sexual themes in the film become much more about like self-identity and sexuality and like yeah. grappling with that, which would also be something that presumably you would deal with if you were in extended isolation or going insane or something like that.
1: I think that interpretation is interesting, but especially because I had like a wholly different view. Like I thought it was interesting that it was a specifically straight sexual frustration in the sense that they had these pent up sexual feelings, but nowhere to put them. Like for me, it didn't feel like they were attracted to each other and that there was some kind of wall or like shame between them, but more like they specifically wanted it to express it somewhere else, but they only had each other. So in that sense, to me, it felt like a really heterosexual (laughs) frustration, so to say. Of just having that energy within you and then having it nowhere to go. And then you start seeing that's probably how the, the mermaid legends began at some point.
0: You have that, and then you have Thomas talking about the lighthouse as his wife, and there's this weird interplay between them where like Ephraim is saying, I'm not your wife. I'm I'm not just gonna do all the housework. And like you said, there's a mermaid. And at the end, there's a moment where, like, Thomas kind of becomes Poseidon and, and Ephraim is beating him up. And then he turns into the mermaid and then back into himself. And, like, he turns into the guy that he had killed or allowed to die at his previous job. So it all gets mixed up. Like we said, there's a lot of symbols and ideas there. But I find this movie fascinating. I love it. I enjoy watching it. I think Eggers is smart enough with his symbolism that he's not just throwing a bunch of stuff out there but i guess the question still remains like does it gel into anything meaningful or do you think it's just kind of a lot of ideas that that don't necessarily like go anywhere i think it does come together
1: i think the the one thing that we haven't yet addressed is the meaning of the light itself which becomes the pivotal aspect of the climax and towards the end thomas and Thomas again at that point, uh, or he, he's revealed his true name. They get into a struggle, and Robert Patterson's character wins, and he finally goes up to the lighthouse and stares into the light. And that's one of my favorite shots in like a long time. And that's where, for me, also the most interesting comparison with Annihilation is because they both have these moments yes. where characters stare into something that's supposed to be incomprehensible to us, that's supposed to be a little bit out of this world, or alien, or horrifying, or appealing. Maybe Maybe even in some way, like I I like how in the lighthouse, it's not specifically shown as being a terrible experience. You can't really tell if he's in complete like agony or in like total euphoria. I think it's supposed to mean like that's the light of the gods. That's like staring into the sun. That's too bright for humans to comprehend. And then I guess that plays into the Willem Dafoe being Poseidon, that if he's more godlike, then he knows what to do with the light in a better way than the mere mortal... Robert Pattinson would and so for him it's more like destructive in that sense. I like how we only see like especially compared to Annihilation we see only the reaction shot. We don't see into the light even though I do like that over just to come back to the production design a little bit that along the way there's a there's these small moments of existential weirdness. There's a moment where quite early on where he's cleaning the toilet or like the sewer bucket or something
0: like it's the water cistern where they store oh, uh, the okay. drinking water and he pours like chlorine or something that would like clean theoretically like clean. it doesn't look very clean to me but because it looked like
1: it smelled <laughs> like really bad so i thought maybe it was some sort of sewage system. Yeah. but yeah anyways he stares into it and he sees this oily layer and it kind of shapes weirdly and yeah. as the music comes enters into the scene and it's played as this Like there's something weird going on, but at the same time, it's all like a practical effect. It's not like CGI or which I think was my major issue. Like my minor complaint about annihilation that it relied too much on CGI and like the spectacle of look at what we created. Look how weird this looks. And I feel the lighthouse was much more restrained in what they showed was practical. And then what they couldn't show that we just see the reaction. So yeah, coming back to the moment at the light itself with Robert Patterson, he finally stares into it and I just love how that particular moment was created. Like the light, it becomes brighter slowly to the point where his face becomes all distorted and the same goes with the sound. He's like yelling his lungs out, but the sound is muffled and it sounds like intentionally bad, like technically really bad like it's been blown out of a speaker like way too loudly and then recorded somewhere else again and i just love the way that moment invokes what it must be like to experience something that your whole being just cannot comprehend or like even like phantom or can even take in as a reality in front of you it's just too much and it does go like in a bit of a comedic moment afterwards as he just falls out of frame and then just stumbles down the entire stairs of the lighthouse yeah (laughs) yeah Did you have any other thoughts on the light itself, what it was supposed to represent or?
0: No, I fully agree with everything you just said. I I think as far as what the light represents, I don't know. I don't know if there's even a specific idea. I think it's more of just a stand in for the object of desire, essentially, like whatever that Mm -hmm. is that kind of draws you towards it. But then like in its pure form, it's too much. It's the symbol of that thing that you like aspire towards and towards, but then you get it and like having it destroys you in in some Mm -hmm. way. So I don't know if you can really, maybe it's an alien. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But it's, it's something we can't understand and the characters can't really understand or grapple with, which I like. And to your point about comparing it to Annihilation, I think that if people have listened to that episode, that was one of my complaints was like. I wanted the film formally to feel like it was descending into this place. And I feel like that's something this movie Mm -hmm. does that Annihilation doesn't, where it's like in that moment specifically, like the light is like blowing out the speakers. It's blowing out the camera. It's as if the film itself can't comprehend what is being seen. And then even before that, as the characters are sort of going insane, the film is going a little bit insane with the characters. Like the film yeah. is stuck inside that subjectivity and that insanity. And so I think we feel it a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I remember you saying in the Annihilation episode that as the viewer, you it's always easy to follow what's right. going on, like uh, as a scene to scene progression. Like you're kind of observing Annihilation from the outside, whereas in the lighthouse, it feels like you are there with them. And as yeah. if they are confused then you are too, and that's that's what i really liked about this film. Yeah. For me it's it, that's what makes this film so effective and coming back to like the overall meaning or effectiveness of what it's trying to do, i think in that sense it is an effective story just as that kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah. It really takes you into that world of strangeness and confusion and frustration also but also of humor too like there's a, quite a bit of comedy there I think that just plays into the absurdity of it all
0: that was something that very much struck me this time was like the first time I watched it especially and even to some extent the second time there's moments that like I laughed at in the first one and there's funny things like it's kind of gross there's like even before you hear lines of dialogue like Willem Dafoe's character farts in robert pattinson's face so it's a ridiculous movie in a sense but like the more i've watched it now and i know kind of the horrifying bits that are coming i don't i don't feel like the anxiety and the dread as much the first time i was like kind of caught up in like oh they're going insane and you know it's kind of anxiety inducing and i have that less now but like it's still funny the more i've watched it the more the funny parts just kind of amplify and there's a sense in which like It's a comedy on a larger like there was something I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was something I laughed at this time around pretty close to the end where I'm like, I'm not even sure if it was supposed to be funny explicitly. Like it's part of a pretty horrifying segment, but just the absurdity of it in itself is just hilarious.
1: It reminded me a little bit of one of Werner Herzog's first film, I think his very first feature film, Signs of Life. I'm not sure if you've seen that I one. Seen it's that one. from nineteen sixty eight. It's about German soldiers in the Second World War who are stationed on an island in Greece somewhere. The vibe is kind of similar to the lighthouse in the sense that the whole story just revolves around them being bored. Because right. it's like this place for wounded soldiers where they go, so they are like, just there recovering and they have nothing to do so they spend their time like hypnotizing chickens and it also has the main character going insane at the end and going on this rampage that eventually kills no one and changes nothing to the island it pretty much explicitly states that (laughs) so yeah comparing those two films really for me amplified the interesting relation between boredom how it leads into a kind of morbid curiosity and just a willingness to do whatever it is to occupy your mind and then how death can slowly turn into a more corrupt like more serious version of insanity and especially when it's combined with isolation and when there's no one to sort of reel you back into like reality
0: yeah And lots of alcohol and (laughs) drinking actual kerosene and things like that.
1: That was the secret that Thomas mentioned, right? Because he mentioned at one point the dangers of boredom in between the water and the wind, I think it was, uh, for sailors. And the only resolution was just drinking and being weird together.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You kind of talked about it at the beginning of it, just being like a story about isolation and and Mm -hmm. insanity. And you can read all these other things into it. And I think a lot of that is there and open to interpretation or whatever. And is very interesting. But it is also just like kind of a funny comedic depiction of just boredom and like the things that come with it, like the the sequence where they first really start drinking and they're just kind of dancing and like going crazy is to me like such a vivid depiction of like I don't know if I've ever kind of done that exactly, but like I feel like I have memories of as a kid. You get so cabin fevered like in some kind of scenario where you're bored and you just have this impulse to kind of just like babble until it turns into some kind of nonsense it's like an itch or something yeah right and then that exhausts you yeah you know and it smash cuts to they're just standing there kind of in each other's arms like uh, uh. (laughs) i don't know i feel (laughs) i feel like if somebody hasn't been there in their life they haven't faced the true depths of boredom and isolation yeah
1: And the absurd lengths that people will go through just to occupy their minds with something. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember what's the most bored you've ever been?
0: I can't think of a specific example, but there have definitely been some like really long car rides, probably like when I was a kid before cell phones, uh, we had family that lived like six hours away. And so sometimes we would be on these like long, long car rides and you have nothing but books to read, Mm -hmm. and you're stuck in the car and you just kind of are going insane as a kid by like the the fifth hour.
1: As a kid, everything feels longer too. Yeah. 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 I remember too, like long car rides and I used to get car sick as a child and like I had to stare outside of the window. And the only thing that worked for me was putting in music. But then that was the time of having like an MP3 player (laughs) that could fit like 20 songs. And that's, all the music you'll have for the next 20 hours or so, like when we are really going on like longer vacations. Yeah,
0: that kind of boredom. I mean, I'm sure kids still feel that way. I think that kind of boredom for adults now is pretty rare. It's like you, Mm you have to end up stuck somewhere without your phone. And like, unless you intentionally kind of create that environment for yourself, I don't remember the last time I faced a situation where I wasn't like out on a hike or like camping or doing Mm -hmm. something where I was intentionally trying to just like relax and be free of distraction where I was just like, oh man, I'm so bored and there's no way of alleviating this boredom. So maybe that's for the best. (laughs) It's interesting
1: to think about how smartphones have changed the experience of boredom in that sense, because I do have moments where I'm like bored and I'm just checking the same apps over and over. And scrolling through stuff that I've already read. And it's kind of like, when you think about it, and I've done that sometimes, and like in hindsight, it feels like this manic moment where you're suddenly, you're not like fully consciously looking at the screen, you're just occupying your mind with something. And it still feels like boredom in a way, but it's more a proactive kind of boredom that maybe takes away that initial itch to find something to do, but then you just replace that with doing something mindless or something, yeah.
0: I've definitely had those moments where you pick up the phone, unlock it, and just kind of swipe through your apps, and then realize there's nothing I actually want to look at or need to look at. And you already did that whole thing two minutes ago. (laughs) Right. So you close the phone and you just set it back down without having done anything. Yeah. So if these guys had had some iPhones out on this.
1: Yeah, uh, I was was thinking like, does this mean the (laughs) Lighthouse could not be made like today or in in a modern setting? I wonder what that would look like. (laughs) What that
0: would look like, I don't know. We all probably faced it a little bit more when we were like more isolated and cooped up during COVID where we have access to the internet, but there's a certain point at which those things kind of run dry. And then you're faced with just like, well, now what do I do? That's where it really starts to take a shift is where the boredom goes from. And this is something I definitely felt throughout 2020 or like as we were more contained, where the boredom shifts from being just like mental like, oh, my mind is bored, to almost this, like, physical experience of, like, my body is bored. I need to go walk somewhere or do something. Yeah,
1: you get, like, physically restless.
0: Yeah. And that's when you're in danger of succumbing to insanity and going after the light. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. One thing I'll add to that is that
1: I've definitely... been in a state like that where I have nothing in particular to do and I feeling like a bit restless. But when I get in that state of mind, I also don't really want to do anything. Like it's also like, like a contradiction where you want something to do, but nothing around you also seems interesting enough to really commit to. Like those are often the moments where I feel like I'll just put on a movie, but then I can't decide on anything. And then I feel like, oh, maybe I don't even want to watch a movie or. Yeah. That's perhaps like what makes it extra frustrating when you have that kind of restlessness that also makes everything around you less interesting. So it's not just that you have nothing to do. It's just that the world has suddenly nothing to offer.
0: But I I feel like for me, a lot of times in those moments, because I've experienced exactly what you're describing as well. And I think like often when I deal with that in a healthy way, I'm able to accept like, oh, I'm bored right now, or I'm just not interested in watching a movie or something and kind of like accepting that and trying to like wait for it to pass. Or maybe I should go for a walk. There's like these healthy ways to cope with it. But sometimes it can turn into this almost anxious cycle. When I'm experiencing that, I do feel like it's connected to the sense of like, If I can just find the right thing, it'll alleviate the boredom. And I think that very much is like connected to this idea of the light in the lighthouse or what Ephraim's experiencing, where he's going crazy. But the entire time he's maintaining this idea of like, if I can just get to the light, that will alleviate whatever I'm experiencing. Like having the light is what is going to solve this problem. And maybe that's an illusion. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Mm. I think at one point the light is also... I'm not sure if Willem Defoe's character said it or that was just my interpretation of it, but the light is also presented as a kind of salvation. So in some way that maybe Ephraim hopes to resolve his troubled or conflicted past by whatever it is that the light has to offer. Yeah. But that really takes it to more of an ultimate form. Like that's not salvation in a moment. That's trying to find salvation or like a justification for life as a whole.
0: I think that also plays into the more purgatorial sort of interpretation of the story, too, where Mm -hmm. you can see like Ephraim is being trapped, being punished by this god character, and he's being punished for his past guilt or sins, and he's trying to escape that or whatever or achieve salvation, and he never really does. there's also this sense of he's being like pushed towards a confession and he does kind of confess eventually, but it's not like a repentance. It's just like a spilling of the beans, as Thomas says.
1: Yeah, that, w- that was such an interesting scene on rewatch because it... Felt like there was some reverse psychology going on where Thomas was constantly downplaying the guilt that he carries. He's like, yeah, or you think you're the first man with a guilty conscience or something like that. And once the confession comes, he's actively saying like, I don't want to hear it. I don't care. Like, it's not like I haven't heard this before. So it's interesting that he's actually, it looks like he doesn't want to hear it. Like he's not interested in Robert Patterson as a character at all. Like he sees him as like simple or like as a open book or a picture, he calls it at one point. He sees him and he can read him like instantly and he doesn't need his confession. He doesn't want to hear his like sob story or whatever he perceives like that history would be of his character. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned the punishment because it does really feel like he is punishing him because I was thinking like maybe... If you have that sort of purgatory interpretation with the God figure and the man in purgatory, then maybe it would be like some sort of test to determine whether he would go on to the better afterlife or the, the lesser one. But it doesn't feel like he's given a choice or like a moral test that he has to pass or that he has to complete somehow. But he's just being punished, like just be a dog and do your chores and then we'll stay here forever. Like it doesn't seem like Robert Pattinson's characters offered a way out or well, at least not a reasonable one. Yeah. So in that sense it does feel like more specifically like he's being punished.
0: There's a sense in which like if I'm remembering how things happen correctly, they're just about to leave when he kills the gull and then that's kind of when things take a turn for the worse. So I think there's a there's a little bit of a sense in which like if he could have just ridden it out just a little bit longer, maybe he would have made it out to the other side, the storm wouldn't have come and they 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 would have been relieved. But instead, he takes it out on this goal and then he doesn't get relief. Maybe that's when he enters more of the purgatory. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I said, there's not really concrete answers, but it's an interesting story too. Which is, I think, why it feels so much like a myth. Because if you go back and read like old myths or folk tales or whatever, they have kind of this quality of like, it feels like there's meaning there inherently, kind of. Like you have this Mm -hmm. intuitive sense of like, oh, this means something. But if you really try to like pick it apart and understand explicitly like what is the story of Prometheus or what do these myths mean it gets very messy very quickly
1: yeah I think in in that sense it's more simplistic as I said earlier or like descriptive but that's not necessarily simplicity does not mean like hollow or without depth or richness yeah I do agree I do not think it's a film that has like hidden layers beneath it. I think it presents everything at the surface. And I think that's the best way to engage with it. Like yes. just surface level, visceral aspect of just the production design, the elements, just the whole presentation. And then the characters, how they interact with each other, what drives them, like the boredom, the jealousy maybe, or the conflicts and the frustration, the desire for more. And then ultimately the sort of cosmic punishment for overstepping your bounds as a mortal creature on this planet.
0: (laughs) There are definitely films out there that are more like a puzzle or there's symbolism where it's like, no film has like a pure singular meaning, but sometimes there is like a meaning that's hidden, that's inserted and kind of coded into the film by the creator, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And you as the viewer can kind of go in and be like, Oh, let me interpret this. Let me find what it actually was. And and most people who interpret it and find all the clues will kind of get to like a somewhat similar place. Like there are some films that are like that. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's a lot of good films like this one where what's underneath, what's more interesting about it is has much more to do with like what is your interpretation? Like what do you see about yourself in it? It almost becomes a Rorschach blotter where it's like, you know, when you look at this, what do you see And then what does that say about you or our society or Robert Eggers' unconscious mind or, you know, whatever? Yeah. Any other closing thoughts, final thoughts?
1: Yeah, as I said, I like the film for what kind of experience it offers on this immediate visceral sense. Like it has a lot of texture to it. I like the sound design. I like the look of it. I like the performances. I think it's a funny film. I like the sort of dark humor that it has. I do like, in the end, how it brings together the absurdity of isolation and the absurdity that comes out of boredom and being alone or being isolated together and just the results of frustration that builds up. And it has like a multitude of tonal aspects to it that I think it ends up meshing quite well, even though it doesn't lead to like a singular analytical interpretation at the end. I just love it as a, just an experiential story.
0: I agree. There's people who have made parody videos on YouTube and stuff of like, what if Wes Anderson made a horror film or something? And I was watching it this time. I was like, if we got like a really good horror film from Wes Anderson, I think it would probably look something more like this. His would probably be a little bit more campy, but I don't know. This movie is pretty campy and it has this kind of just like very intentional, almost at times like cartoonish. I think that's the beauty of it is he's staging almost these cartoonish elements But in a very real way, like there's an incredible dedication to like making sure the costumes look real and the environment looks real. And like you said, building everything practically and like all of that stuff. But there's always a clear sense of like, this is a story. This is a movie. Like we're even going to zoom in on the close up Mm -hmm. and have thunder clapping in the background for like the monologue. Like it's unapologetically just like, here's the story. Here's a movie that I'm showing you. Yeah, It doesn't try to like trick you into thinking like you're in a realist sort of scenario but it still is very engaging you get caught up in that anyway so this was one of those movies where the first time I watched it in the theaters I was sold at the opening I think it does such a great job of setting up its conflict and setting like it's there's darkness and you hear the fog horn and then there's fog and out of the center of the fog comes the ship and then there's the second shot is Mm -hmm. waves lapping against the ship and then You have a shot of the two guys and then you have the shot of the lighthouse emerging out of that. And it's just like the first four shots in the first like minute or 30 seconds or whatever just sets up this world so well. And I was like, when I saw that, I was like, I don't know where this movie is going, but whatever (laughs) ride it's about to take me on, I'm interested in taking it. Yeah. So I love that kind of just like confidence and assurity and like, here's what we're giving you and just like setting that up so clearly and strongly at the beginning. Are you looking forward to The Northman, Robert Eggers' next film?
1: Yeah, definitely. I also liked The Witch, the one he did before The Lighthouse. I've seen it been described as, or at least I've seen The Lighthouse being described as the masculine version of The Witch, which was more about the feminine in that sense. Yeah. But yeah, The Northman, the trailer surprised me a little bit in the sense that it felt a bit more conventional compared to The Lighthouse. But I feel like The Lighthouse was so specific, it doesn't feel like that's the only vision that the director has. Like, it didn't feel to me like that's how he wants to make all of his movies. It just felt to me like that's how he wanted to tell this specific story. But yeah, it does look like it will have a weird Willem Dafoe again, along with uh, many other cast members. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it.
0: If you listen to behind the scenes stuff with Robert Eggers, like you said, he's much more interested in like fully entering into the style that best embodies the story he's trying to tell rather than like having a specific stylistic vision that he's carrying from film to film, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fascinating way to approach things. In closing, there's two things I want to acknowledge, which is the fact that we're both... Named Tom and Thomas, (laughs) and we're talking about a movie where both of those are the characters. And I think when you mentioned The Witch just now, I realized that I think The Witch is the only movie that we've ever seen together in person because we watched that, at least part of it, in Orlando. Oh, that's right. I think you had seen it before, but it was the first time I had seen it, so... Officially, that's the only movie we've watched together. <laughs>
1: we've watched other ones, too,
0: at the, at the festival itself. Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. You forgot about uh, Chimera? Yes, <laughs> maybe one day we'll do it. We'll set up some kind of, like, our 100th episode or something. We'll do an, an episode about Chimera. <laughs>
1: For those who don't know, Chimera was this really low-budget science fiction horror story that we watched at this film festival. Uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't great. But no, no, not great at <laughs> aim all. Aim for effort. Though. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to check out our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula, where you can listen to all these episodes a week early and you can hear them without ads or sponsors. The best way to get access to Nebula is with the Curiosity Stream bundle, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more about that, you can go to curiositystream.com slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the show notes. And we'll talk to you again next time.